You are listening to the Equip Podcast. This weekly course seeks to equip our church, and we pray it can help you as well. Check out more resources at rockycreek.church. So tonight, uh, we want to talk about uh, actually Scripture, which is kind of unique. So we're going to unpack Scripture to talk about Scripture. And we're going to talk about how we study the Word of God in order to study the Word of God, if that makes sense, okay? Um, so to do that, I want everybody to get a copy of God's Word. Uh, I want you to, if you got it there with you, and I want you to close it up if you can for a second, okay? Go ahead and close it up. Uh, we're going to look at something. Because typically, when we, we come to uh, God's Word, people will read it in a bunch of different ways, okay? Uh, in fact, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that if this is the method that which you read God's Word, I'm going to tell you we're going to do it one more time, then you're not going to do it ever again, okay? So I want you to get God's Word like this, okay? And then I want you just to put your finger somewhere in the middle or on the pages, right? Okay, somewhere in the middle. And you're going to open it up. Okay, don't look at it, though. Put your finger down at a verse. And imagine if this is God's Word for you. Now you can read it, okay? You'll spare vengeance? Somebody's... Now that list, that word is for you. Okay, that's what. So th- if this is a word that you want to hear tonight, that I will spare vengeance and uh, no, I'll give vengeance and spare no one. Right? That's that's God's word for Tig and for some of the rest of you. Okay. Anybody else got a word from the Lord tonight? Anybody something random? What you got? I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the rhymes, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the to the fruit of his doing. Okay, so according, God's going to give you according to the fruit of your doings. That one's a lot better than the wrath one, okay? Let me, let me give you what I got. Um, the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Amen. Right, okay? Like, now, you read that, and um, all right, let me ask you a question. Could God speak through that medium? The answer is yes. Is that how God typically speaks through the word? The answer is no. no. Um, this is a book that God put an intro, a body, and a conclusion to. There's different sections of it, and you would read no other book in the world like that. And while this book is supernatural, you do not need to read that book this way. God speaks it in very different ways. Let me tell you another way that some people read, so it's not the like... I would just call it the fortune teller, like where does it fall? Some people read it like what I call the high school yearbook, right? Okay? So this is, imagine for a second, if this is your high school yearbook, the way typically if you got one of those, what you would do is you would go to the back of the yearbook, right? You look at the index because you were looking for a name. Whose name are you looking for? Mine, right? So I'm going to look. I'm not worried about this club or that sport. You know why? I'm not on it, right? Okay? I'm only looking for the pages of that book that relate to me. And the, the dangerous way of reading scripture is, is that you look at an index and you look at what you're going through and you look at a verse that will apply to you. I'm, going, I'm dealing with anger right now. Let me find all the verses on anger. I'm dealing with through anxiety right now. Let me find all the verses on anxiety. You are looking at this book as if you were the main character and spoiler alert, you are not. This book is not necessarily about you. Yes, it's about how we need to relate, but this book ultimately, the main character is who? Scott, right? We've got to read it in that way. Can't read it like a high school yearbook, can't read it like a fortune cookie, just kind of sort of taking little bits and pieces, deciding where it is. We've got to read it according to the way that God has put this book together. Um, and, and so with this, uh, as we look through the pages of Scripture, we're going to learn some things about it. First and foremost, 
reality of Scripture indicates a glorious message. The omniscient, that means the all-knowing God, desires to communicate with us. Is that not incredible in and of itself? I mean, that God wants to speak to us. Out of all the things that God could do, should do, would do, the fact that he wants to communicate with us is absolutely remarkable for me to even fathom. That God wants to speak, and he speaks through us through the power of his word. Now, the way we undertake something called bibliology, right, will be the single most determining factor in developing our theology. So he talked about theology, that we want to understand how we study God, but before we learn how to study God, we've got to figure out what the textbook is, right? So in this, bibliology means the scriptures, the study of scripture, the study of the writings. So the way that we undertake bibliology will be the single most determining factor in developing our theology. Um, Years ago, uh, I, I preached a sermon here where I tried to make sure that everybody knew that the book that I held in my hand was not a Bible, but I just said, let's just imagine this is my Bible right now when I'm reading along and I don't like this and I ripped the page out and I can remember some old lady in the back went, <gasps> like this, I thought she was going down. I thought this was a heart attack, it was going to take her out, right? Okay, and I was like, no, 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 this is not God's Word. I'm using this as an illustration. And, and, and we would think how disrespectful if anybody were to rip certain portions of the Scripture out of portions that they don't like, but I'm here to tell you, Every time we read something and say, I don't believe that, that's what we're doing. We're ripping certain things out and we're putting certain things in. So when I say that the way we undertake bibliology, the way that we study God's word will be the single most determining factor in developing our theology, either this book right here tells us who God is or it does not. That's it. And if this is not the book that determines who God is, then we've got to figure out what standard we're going to follow by. So, as we go through this, we're going to talk about some kind of big sections about what does it mean about what the Word of God is before we start getting into the nature and the work of God uh, next week. Um, by the way, um, it's, it's an incredible thing. Uh, if you were here last week, if you got to hear Cameron uh, Brock speak, it is absolutely amazing that as our church family, that Cameron is a guy who is a member and he teaches and just kind of like this theology like master how i mean just I mean, it's incredible what he knows and just the gifts that we have and so i hated not being here but when i, I listened uh just the way he taught when i'm just such a gift just to see somebody who's just practically wanting to say i want to know god's word more and so as we unpack these truths here we're going to look at some big big words here inspiration inerrancy infallibility canonicity and authority doesn't that sound exciting yeah. i'm ready okay let's talk first and foremost Inspiration, okay? And we see here, uh, as we go, about all Scripture, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, okay? So as we look at this, it says all Scripture is what? Yeah, breathed out, or God breathed, your translation will say. is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, right? For reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So there's four things here that he says. But it says all Scripture is Breathe out by God. So when we open up God's word, it is as if God is breathing the life in, into what we need to know. Now, uh, one thing to consider with a beautiful kind of um, symbolism of what God's doing here, if you think through, uh, when God spoke all things into creation, what did he use? The word. The word, right? God said, let there be light and light happened. God did not get his 
fingers dirty, his hands dirty, right, if you will. He spoke it and it happened. So the word of God created all things, which is why we get to John chapter 1, what it say, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This word became manifest and was the person of Jesus, right? So that Jesus is the power of creation. But when God, then in one creation, God does not speak into existence, but he does what? He forms it with his hands. What creation was that? It was Adam. But Adam is there, and the form is there, but there's no life. And so what does God do? He breathes into him. Okay? First CPR, right? Okay, this is first. He breathes life, and all of a sudden, Adam becomes a living being. His chest begins to move. Everything starts to work. He's a living being because the breath of God has now come out of God and now put into Adam, and now there is life. And so I think there's a reason why Paul would use a symbolism like this. That all scripture is like God is breathing whoo, and, and causing our spirits to come alive when we read it. And, and there are moments throughout my life where things just don't make sense. And all of a sudden I read what God has breathed out and it just becomes clear. It's like it brings life to me, right? It does something so incredible. So all scripture is, is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching Here's what you need to do for reproof. Here's what you don't need to do, right? Here's correction. When you haven't done what you need to do, here's what you need to do to fix it. And for training in righteousness, so you continue to go forward. And then that the man of God may be complete. That's a good word, by the way, right? You're complete. And equipped for how much? How many good works? Every good work, right? Or all good works. So this is the idea that if you want to be a man of God or woman of God to be complete, that you feel somewhat immature, how are you going to do that? Well, I can tell you this. You will not do it outside the Word of God. It has to come in because something changes when you go, this is not just somebody telling me what they ought to do. This is powerful for me to go, this is equipping me for every good work. Um, When I was a college student, the first international mission trip, that I went on, I went to Tokyo, Japan, uh, as 18, 19-year-old kid, and uh, I remember that somewhere along the way, um, that summer, I had been around someone who had knew, knew God's Word and had memorized God's Word so much that it made me just really frustrated with how little I knew. So I can even remember that, um, that one day, this man who was training us before we went on the mission trip invited us to a Bible study. We were going to this little room at the hotel we were staying at before we left on the trip. And I realized he had forgotten something to the Bible study. You might want to guess what he forgot. His Bible. Kind of thought it was embarrassing. So I was like, hey, uh, Mr. So-and-so, would you, uh, it looks like you forgot your Bible. Would you like to borrow mine? He goes, no, nah, we'll be fine. <laughs> okay. Right, okay. This is what the Bible study was that day. He said, all right, young man. What questions do you have about God's Word? I was like, what do you mean? He says, what questions do you have about God's Word? And uh, so someone says, what, is, what does the Bible say about this? And he just started quoting, 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 quoting. For about three hours that night, we started leveling off every question we could ever think about what does God's Word say, and he had an answer ready to go and didn't have a Bible in hand. I got so frustrated about 90 minutes in, I just started throwing out random questions going, he won't have a verse for this one. And I would throw one out, he had a verse for it. Okay, like every single one. And my, my mind is absolutely blown. So I remember like I was just so overwhelmed with, I, I just want to know God's Word better than I, than I do. And here's this guy who... I, it was so helpful because in, this is what took place that night. We would ask him questions about what should we do in this situation. And you know what he did not say? Here's what I think you ought to do. He said, here's what God says you should do. And there's a different weight there, folks. 
come into a counseling office with me? Uh, I don't know. Maybe you could do this. That doesn't sound too hopeful, right? Versus this is God's word. I can stand behind this. And so for me, I just learned a long time ago that there is weight and experience and wisdom that this world can provide, but it can only take you so far. There's difference in saying, thus saith trial versus thus saith the Lord. And as much as I can, like I want to be able to say, what does God's word say about this? And so this word says that it helps us be complete and equips us for every single good work. So when we talk about inspiration, if we look back to once again, that all scripture is breathed out, this word is inspiration. In reality, it's like God is breathing out his word into people who write it down for our own lives. So while there are many inspiring books, there's only one inspired book, okay? So there's a lot of inspiring books out there. I could ask you what's your favorite Christian author, and I'm sure you've got some, right? It might be A.W. Tozer. It might be C.S. Lewis. It might be who knows who it might be, right? You've got all different types of authors. I love this person. I love that person. A lot of inspiring authors out there. Only one inspired book. A lot of things that would be inspiring that is God lead, but this is the only book that is God breathed out. And so it has to have a different weight to it. A lot of inspiring books, only one inspired. And so with this, the scriptures were given through expiration and not dictation. Let me explain what that means, okay? So the scriptures were given through expiration, right? And not dictation. So when we say that God inspired um, the word, Typically, what we may think of as um, there is someone who is dictating a message to a scribe, right? I want you to tell them this, and right, you're just kind of writing it down, right? Um, that's not the way that we believe that the inspiration of God's word happens. It's not as if um, the apostle John is like, you know what, I feel like writing something, and all of a sudden God just goes, Voom, takes his pen and starts, oh my goodness gracious, and starts writing all this stuff down. Like it doesn't work like that because even within the contains of what we see in Scripture. Um, John will write funny things that is not from the position that God would write them. I love one of, one of my, honestly, one of the funniest verses in the Bible is John chapter 20, where um, John's perspective of Jesus' resurrection says that the women come and tell him and Peter that um, Jesus is alive, right? And, and they're just shocked. And it says, and Peter and the other disciple, because back in those days, if you're writing a book, you can't say it's you. You have to say somebody, you know, whatever. The other disciple, you can't call your name. It says, Peter and the other disciple started running. And Peter started before the other disciple, but the other disciple outran Peter. And like, this is the moment where I go, even the apostles are just a bunch of dudes. You know what I'm saying? Like, here they are arguing about who's faster. And this is the moment where I go, this is not God going, John, write that you are faster than Peter, right? John's bringing his personality to this, right? John's bringing a little playful, like, hey, Peter, remember that time I outran you, <laughs> right? It's not dictation where God is saying, write this exactly this way. They have no conscious thought. They go into this mindless trance where all of a sudden they write down, and now this is God's word. It's not that. But what we believe to be on the pages of Scripture is expiration. God has breathed it out. They have received it, and they have written it down in what we believe this to be as true. Now, what, what happens there is you go, okay, but if it's not dictation, how does this take place, right? Well, the human authors still wrote with their unique personalities, their intentionalities, and even vocabularies, but the content comes from the authority of God. So if, if we think through it, right, human authors, they write with their personalities. We've got John, Rib, and Peter, right? Um, we have... Um, Paul, who's a little bit edgy at certain times. 
We got David who can be edgy, and he also can write some really good, nice poetry, right? You got, you got different personalities of how stuff comes across. You got different intentionalities. I'm, I mentioned today that if you were to want to read a gospel that connects more to the Old Testament, we'll go to the Matthew. Why? Because that's kind of what Matthew wanted to do, right? Mark was writing to a bunch of Romans who liked action in the Colosseum, so he wasn't going to bore you to death with a bunch of sermons. He was going to say, then Jesus did this, and then he did this, and boom, boom, boom. It just keeps happening. And then Luke was going, oh, there's a lot of people out here who aren't Jewish, and they need to understand the Gentile perspective of it, and I'm a doctor, and I'm very analytical. I'm going to write it like that. And John says, okay, well, you all wrote your three Gospels, and it's been about 20 years. There's a missing piece here, and I want to talk about the theological ramifications of what took place. They each wrote with different intentionalities. They also wrote with different vocabularies, right? Okay? Different vocabularies. What I mean by that is, um, I took a lot of Greek in college. I took some Greek in seminary, and that was a long time ago, and I can still pick up my Greek New Testament, and I can read some sections of the New Testament in Greek. And some sections, I can say, I'm going to get out that English version, okay? Here's why. Um, you can tell this. We just, we just finished through First John as a church, right? At the end of last year. First John, some of the verses are like this. God is light. God is love. Love is light. Love, you know what I'm saying? It's just like it's, it's, not, it's not a lot of vocabulary there. John was a fisherman. He kind of wrote to the point, wasn't using a lot of flowery language. You get to Dr. Luke, his introduction gives me a headache. Inasmuch as it seemed eloquent to me, most excellent Theophilus. I'm going, I don't have that vocab word. Okay, Luke, I don't have that. You read Hebrews? Whoever wrote that thing, man, he got some words. Okay, he's got some words. Like, I'm just going, I, I, don't, I don't have that. So each of them come with their own vocabularies. So it's different, right? You got kings writing certain sections of it. And you got fishermen writing certain sections of the Bible. You go, won't that not work? Beautifully, it works together. Why? Because God's inspiring these people to use their unique personalities, intentionalities, and even vocabularies. But the content comes from the authority of God. That's what gives it the weight there. So the Bible, uh, as we, we look, as you, you might have heard this phrase before, the Bible is the inspired inerrant and infallible word of God, right? Some of you probably heard that phrase and go, I don't know exactly what all that means. Well, you will tonight, okay? We just talked about the inspiration that, that the Bible is inspired, so that's good, so it, it's breathed out by God. What does it mean that it's inerrant? Well, when you look at inerrancy, what is a word that kind of looks like the errant part? Anybody? Error, okay, perfect. So when we look at inerrancy, that's kind of what we want to know for sure, that this is talking that there's no errors in Scripture. In 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 20, this is what it says. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's, what? Own interpretation. He's saying, realize this, no Scripture out there comes from somebody's own interpretation of what they think is right. And then look at verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of who? Man. But men spoke, What? From God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? This is a pretty neat phrase here in the way that, that Peter wrote this. Once again, as Scripture saying, it wasn't produced by the will of man. Peter wasn't thinking, you know what I need to do? I need to write some Scripture here. <laughs> I feel like I'm somebody special that you need to listen to. But men, they spoke from God. So once again, there's a different weight that says, I would say that in those early days, if Peter wrote something, surely people want to listen to the guy who was kind of a leader in the church. But there's also something different when it says, but God spoke this. God breathed this out. God taught me this. Comes along, carried along by the Holy Spirit, guided by. So when we get to inerrancy, we realize 
Inerrancy means that there are no errors contained in the scriptures. This is a foundational belief that is very difficult for some people to be able to receive and to understand, to accept. Inerrancy means that there are no errors contained in the scripture. So, when we get to that, we believe that what is contained in the 1,189 chapters of the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, we believe it is exactly the way that what God wanted us to have in Scripture. There are no errors in it. Now, let me uh, give you an example uh, of how this can play out. So you might say there's, there's a lot of content there. Surely there's an error. There's something that contradicts each other. There's something that goes off. But even within Scripture, you see that there's, there are no errors that even somehow within all these different authors, all these different times, all these different languages, it's like it's one message going across. Um, after one of our services today, uh, a couple of gentlemen came up to me and said, hey, we're just new to the area. We came to the church for the first time today. I said, oh, that's awesome. Tell me what, tell me what your story is. And they said, well, we're both Muslim, and we just moved in the area, but we thought we'd just come to church today and just visit you guys. I said, that's awesome, man. I'm so glad that you came. What'd you think? It was like, it was really good. You know, we, we enjoyed this kind of stuff. We'd like to come back if we could. I'm like, that'd be awesome. Come on back anytime. In fact, if you want to get together, we could talk, whatever, kind of unpack what you're thinking and stuff. They said, okay, that'd be really great. I just moved from this, moved from that. And, you know, we're all from Father Abraham. I'm like, yeah, we, we, we got some traces there. Um, there's, there, there's some other stuff that's a little different, but yeah, I, I'm with you. Okay, what, what track? We'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Father Abraham, many sons, right? Okay, like, we, we'll go down that route, and but we'll, we'll get to it, right? But Here's this moment where um, if, I, if I'm sitting there and, and I'm going to talk with someone of the Muslim faith, they have a, a copy of their scriptures uh, called the Quran. And the Quran was written by a guy by the name of Muhammad. And Muhammad was uh, taught the Old Testament and the New Testament from neighboring Jews. Muhammad was an illiterate man. Um, he was taught the scriptures from Jewish people. And then he claims to have a vision that he received from an angel who said, Everything that they've taught you in scriptures is wrong and you need to correct it. And so what the Quran is, sometimes you will be reading about Adam and Eve and you go, that sounds similar, but it's really different. Why? Because Muhammad said there's an error there and I need to fix it. And all the Jewish and all the Christian people, that they, 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 don't, they don't get it right. So, um, for instance, you get to um, Abraham sacrificing a child. It wasn't Isaac. It was Ishmael is what they believe. Why is that? Because he believed that all the Arab people came from Ishmael, that lineage, and he wanted to lay claim to the firstborn child of Abraham. So he, he changes it, right? Um, and he, he said, he, his response was, Gabriel the angel told me to do this, right? Now, here's the deal. Uh, in the Quran, many people will say there are errors that contradict one another in the Quran. And most Muslim scholars, if you've ever read the Quran, would say, we agree. 100% they are. Here's what they would say is something called a progressive revelation, which means this. What Muhammad understood at the very beginning worked at the very beginning, but later on in life, God progressively revealed more to him when he was ready to receive it. Okay, I, I could see that. The only problem is, is when you read the Quran, one section says, do not argue with people of the Jewish and Christian faith because we are of the same family, same God. And in another chapter of the Quran, it says, lie and wait for them and ambush the infidels and kill them if they do not convert. Problem is, which is the later revelation? You'd say, well, read it. No, no, no. The way the Quran is compiled, the longest chapter goes first, the shortest chapter goes at the end, and we have no idea which order it goes in. So within the pages of the Scripture, there's contradictions just fighting each other, and they say, ah, and so, okay, now this is why some of you go, ah, I know enough about Islam just to make me dangerous, and I'll say that's about most Americans, right? And, and here's the deal. 
Some Muslims would say, I believe in the first one was the later one, and some people would say it's the second one was the later one, and that completely changes the way that you view people of other religions. Don't you see it? The guys that I talked to today are probably thinking the later revelation is don't argue with the Christians and the Jews. We're on the same team, right? I could tell right away where they thought. Switch them, changes everything. So within the scripture, there's contradiction. There's errors. They know that. So what do we get to scriptures where we have certain situations that seem like, uh, it, or are there? The pages of scripture remarkably have this unified approach. Are there certain times where you go, ah, uh, I don't know. There, there's some differences there, right? I'll give you an example. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all their resurrection accounts, the details are different depending upon which one you're writing. Like one says at the very beginning of the morning and one says at sunrise. There's a difference, right? Well, no, it's kind of the same time. We can see that. Okay, well, you understand that. Some of them, it says Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and another one says Mary and another Mary came. Which one was it? Well, most people would say, well, for the audience who knew Mary Magdalene, they just used her name. But for other people who knew the others, they'd kind of include all those others, right? You can see, and what you do notice throughout, through all the even discrepancies, if you will, there is not one place in Scripture that if you choose to follow this, completely blows up an entire theological portion. It's details that honestly can be remedied together versus to varying different paths as you open up Scripture. So when we say there are no errors contained in Scripture, it's a huge, huge foundational belief for us. That we believe that God ensured that what was written was exactly what he desired for us to read. When we open up the pages of Scripture, we say what is there is exactly what he desired for us to read. He is not looking at and saying, oh, Ezra, why did you include that? Right, okay? What we have is exactly what he wanted us to read as we open up God's Word from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So with this, we believe a unique thing about inerrancy being no errors and the inspiration of God is that the scriptures have something called dual authorship, which means this. We believe that both God and man wrote this down. So man's pen, God's expiration. Man's personality, but yet God's authority going through the pages. Now, if you think about dual authorship, so scripture... Um, if this was fully God, this would have been dropped from heaven, right? With divine fingerprints upon it. If it was fully man, it would be full of all kinds of errors. But we believe in this view that this book is fully God and fully man. Is there anything else we would claim fully God and fully man in our theology? Jesus, the living word, right? Here's the word of God. We believe it's not just fully God or not just fully man. It's fully God and fully man. So that, that's where inerrancy comes. Look at infallibility for a second, right? So with infallibility, you go, does that mean it doesn't fall? Pretty close, okay? Um, it means that Scripture's not going to fail. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me, what? Empty, right? Empty or void. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So when Isaiah writes this, 
on behalf of God. He gets a word from God and says this. When God's word goes forth, it's like the, the snow, it's like the rain. It hits the ground and it's going to cause a harvest. It's going to cause some type of produce, some type of good, beneficial thing to take place. So when God's word comes into our life, it's like it waters the soil of our own soul and it does not return to him without accomplishing for what he said. So with this, infallibility means this simple yet profound thought. Since God is perfect, so must his revealed word be as well. God's word, God is perfect, so therefore God's word is perfect. It is infallible. It will not fail. It's reliable. In a world full of conditional um, promises that can get us all types of sideways, right? God is perfect. His revealed word must be as well. God does not lie, so we can trust what he tells us. So inerrancy is telling us that there are no errors contained in the scripture. Infallible is basically telling us this. He couldn't err even if he wanted to, right? His nature is he will not lie. Numbers 23, 19 says it this way. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Uh, Hebrews 6, 18 says that, that God cannot lie. So when he speaks, we can trust what he tells us. Practical way for us to land this is this. God's promises will come to pass, right? God's promises will come to pass. If he said it, you can bank on it. And God's word is infallible when what he says is true. So for me, when I look at the prophecies that are contained in the Old Testament that were fleshed out in the life of Jesus Christ, I have no problem completely building my entire life and hope and security around the promises of Jesus returning. Because if God's word could predict his first coming, I believe that God is able to also predict his second coming. It's infallible. I can trust in that. So God has promised, and I believe with everything within me, it will come to pass. Now, we get this wonderful word called canonicity. Okay? Does that sound fun? Canonicity. Okay? You may not ever... Uh, like, what is this? I've never read that word. Most people haven't. Um, but we're going to talk about what is the canon of Scripture. And you're like, does that mean it blows stuff up? Quite possibly. But not, that's not exactly what this means. 2 Thessalonians 2.15 says it this way. So then, brothers... Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our what? Letter. So to the Thessalonian church, who's writing this, by the way? Paul is. So he says, you're holding on the traditions that either we preach to you or we wrote in a letter to you. And in this moment, Paul is claiming something that sounds somewhat shocking. He's saying, when I wrote that first letter to you that we would know as first Thessalonians, it's not me just writing you a little pen pal letter. He understood that what he was writing, he was undertaking something that was a much more seismic approach than what typically you and I would think of when we write something. He says, you are hold to these traditions. Well, how could Apostle Paul say that? Because he understood what was going on with something so remarkable. Uh, Peter said in, in 2 Peter, he said, um, as you write in the Holy Scriptures by Paul, he even identified Paul's writings in those days, in his current year, Current years when they're living is saying Paul's letters are on the level of Scripture now, right? With God's Word, which is a pretty shocking thing to say. Now, here it comes down to um, some of you are very analytical folks, and God has wired you that way for your good and, you know, and for our good. And sometimes it can be a real bother to some of you, though, right? Because some of you would say, I'm all good for 
if God said, here are my 66 books in which I want you to follow. Some of you have read enough on that reliable place called the Internet that will tell you that at some point in life, a group of old guys got together and decided what went in the Bible and what went out of the Bible, right? Some of you struggle with that. Some of you are like, I don't even know that's how it happened. Well, guess what? We about to open up a can. Okay, so the word canon means a measuring rod or the norm. It's a Greek word canon, meaning it's a measuring rod or the norm. So when we speak of the canon of Scripture, we're talking about what is the measuring rod of God's work among us. What is the norm? What do we accept to be God's word? And what do we say, that's not God's word? Might be inspiring, might be helpful, but we do not put it on the level of God's word. This is where it comes challenging, right? Because once again, um, many of you know that one of my favorite, well, my favorite dead theologian is a guy by the name of A.W. Tozer, a Chicago pastor, uh, just a guy that was just, you couldn't really fit him in a nice little tidy box, but man, when he would write, he would just blow your mind. And I, I read some of that stuff. First time I ever read anything by him, it's the opening word of a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. It says this, what comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And I don't know why, but as an 18-year-old, that blew my head off. I mean, I was like, What? What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because if you think he's a distant God, guess what? You'll walk in distance from him all your life. If you think he's angry at you all the time, you're walking around in fear. But if you think he's a loving father who sent his son Jesus to die for you and sent his Holy Spirit to guide you, it changes everything. Whatever comes to your mind when you think about him, most important thing about you. Hey, that line is solid, okay? It is fantastic. It's not God's word. It's not God's word. So why do we not have 67 books and the last book is the book of Tozer, Right? Why do we not have that in there? Um, here's, here's, here's why. When we speak of the canon of Scripture, we mean the collection of books that make the Bible by which the church is to be measured. Okay, The canon is the measuring rod. It is the norm. Uh, the collection of books, the 66 books, the 39 in the Old Testament, the 27 in the New Testament, that we say, this is what makes the Bible no more, no less. This is the canon of Scripture. And I'll just go ahead and tell you this. The canon of Scripture was closed years ago. There are many people who speak on behalf of God, but there is no book out there. I don't care if it's been on the top bookshelf of Christian readers for decades. It is not the Word of God. And let me explain the difference and how this comes to, right? Because this is where it's going to be challenging. Scripture was not officially canonized until the 4th century, but practically existed since the beginning of the early church. Let me explain what that meant. There was not an official moment where the church declared these books are in and these books are out until close to 400 years after the time of Christ. Now, some of you hear that go, that's problematic, right? Because you go, surely they would have, I don't know, a few years after Jesus' death, they would have locked that thing in, right? Practically speaking, it existed early on. And here's what I mean by that. Um, the early church knew that what we read as the gospel of Matthew was from a disciple named Matthew, even though Matthew's name is not attributed to it once you read it. If you read chapters 1 through 28, he will never say, by the way, my name's Matthew. I'll, I'll sign it and autograph it for later if you want to. How do we know it's Matthew? Because he wrote it and the early church recognized it and it was passed down through the centuries as 
The Apostle Matthew, one of the original 12 disciples, the tax collector that was converted, wrote this down, and everybody knew it. And he wrote that book. Some of you know this. He wrote that book probably in the 40s or the 50s, which you go, wait a minute. Some of you know Jesus died somewhere in not the 40s or the 50s, but the 30s. What? Matthew, if Jesus, if he did all these things, why are you waiting 10 or 20 years to write a book? Can anybody here think why um, Apostle Matthew may have not had time to write a book in those first 20 years of following Jesus? He was literally hunted down for his life, right? First and foremost, uh, the establishment was trying to kill him and snuff out every single disciple. The other thing that was a reality for Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, and everybody, they thought Jesus was going to come back any day. Why write a book? Nobody's gonna, we about to be gone out of here. He says he's going to come back soon. We don't need to write it down. He said, don't be able to stand up in the sky. You'll know it. Just get busy with it. So they were just going like he's going to show up any time now. Month passes. All right. Maybe two months in. Year passes. Decade passes. And they go, maybe we didn't understand exactly what he said. That's why Peter would say in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse number 8, with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years might be feel like one day. He said, I'm coming soon. And it is soon, just not the way we soon, right? I'm soon like I want my food in like two minutes, right? He's like, well, no, that's soon. You want it cooked well or not, right? We, okay. and, and, and so here's this picture that the understanding, how they, they laid it out. So um, Matthew and all these disciples, they didn't write their book. But this is also what's crazy because Matthew wrote it within 10 to 20 years. Mark wrote his within 10 to 20 years. Luke, about 20 years afterwards. And Matthew and Mark were... We know Matthew was a part of when Jesus fed the 5,000 people. He was one of the guys who, who passed out the food, right? First-hand information. <laughs> Jesus gave me that stuff and said, make it last, boy. I'm like, what? You so many people are here? Like, how the word? He goes, just, just keep going. Just keep dishing it out, right? So in a oral culture, the way that Jesus' time lived in, you did not pass stories by texting it to people or videoing it, whatnot. You, you told the story and you passed it oral to next person on, right? You told stories. And so within 10 to 20 years, when Matthew wrote a story, if he would have said, man, there was actually 25,000 men, the way most Baptist preachers would have done it. If he said, instead of 5,000 men, there's 25,000 men that were there that day, right? There's enough people still alive going, that's false, Matthew, and you know it. We were there. What, 25,000? There's 5,000. Get it right. Come on. We don't need to brag about this. 5,000 is impressive. And the whole thing would have been shot. If, if in some type of way they said, oh, you know, well, it was John who walked on water. Everybody's like, it wasn't John. It was Peter. Come on. The rest of the 10 of us that are still alive, we know that. Come on, man. Get it right. There was enough people still alive in that time to call it fake if it was. But at this time, there are thousands of people who have been around these moments. And when these letters start passing, they go, mm, I was there for that day. You're right. Lazarus got up. Man, you, you, now, now, even that, great example. Uh, i got to go quick. Okay, Lazarus, right? Lazarus, Lazarus, his story is only in the Gospel of John, which was written in the 80s. It's not in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Why in the world would you not go, I'm going to start off with a killer story. Lazarus was dead and he got up. Why would Matthew, Mark, Luke not want to do that? Here's my thinking. Because in the 50s and 60s, when Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their thing, Lazarus was probably still alive, alive. And if he was, people would worship Lazarus instead of the risen Jesus. 
I think when John wrote his letter, I think Lazarus had probably died a second time. You know what I'm saying? Like just a natural causes, he's going to be with Jesus, and there wasn't going to be any type of worship of this man who wants to taste of death. I believe when I, also, I believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke left him out to protect him during those times, and also to make sure that the focus was on the risen Christ instead of the risen Lazarus who was still among them. So you start seeing this, and you go, okay, I understand why this person wrote this, and that person didn't write that. So I say there was no canonization until the 4th century, but the early church, they all knew what was in and what was out. They, they all knew it until this moment uh, took place. There was a heretic named Marcion denounced, he denounced certain portions of the New Testament that connected it with portions of the Old Testament he deemed as undesirable. There's this guy who is teaching some very, very bad things, and he decides he's taking certain sections of Matthew out, certain sections of Paul's letters out, certain sections of Peter, certain things that he doesn't like because it connects to certain things the Old Testament he likes. And so he goes, here's my canon of Scripture. Therefore, it's not 27 books of the New Testament. It was like 21 and a half or something like this. It's where all the church leaders at that time were like, oh, no, you do not. Everybody knows there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Don't bring that Thomas stuff to us. Did y'all know there's a Gospel of Thomas, by the way? There's a Gospel of Thomas out there that most people think were written in the 200s. But I thought Thomas was around the time of Jesus. Now you're getting it. Okay, right? But the, so somebody puts, they, they write something down and they put Thomas's name according to it because Thomas is in the Gospels. Maybe you'll read their stuff if they put Thomas's name on it. And it identifies certain points in the life of Jesus. Like when Jesus was a young boy, one day there was a boy that was picking on him and he cursed the boy and the boy withered up and he died. It's in the Gospel of Thomas. That's why it's not in your Bible. Because it didn't happen, okay? That's why for 400 years, the church said, that's not real. That's not Thomas. That's not scripture. That's not about Jesus. So they cast it aside like any other stupid book, right? Okay. They just, it's not in here. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were in there. Why? We know Matthew. We know Mark. We know Luke. We know John. It's been affirmed for years. It wasn't until Marcion said, I don't like this part, this part, where they got together and they got this council together and said, okay, we are going to decide what's in, what's out. And they did this. So once he created his canon, Church leaders convened to combat this dangerous trend. They all gathered together and said, okay, we've got to figure out what makes the cut, what's out, what do we need to do? And as we read this, here's three simple essentials for canonicity. As those men gathered together, there were three things that decided what will, especially the 27 books of the New Testament, what gets in, what gets out. First one essential for canonicity is something called apostolic origin. Okay? Apostolic origin. The document had to be written by an apostle or under the direction of an apostle. Okay? Who is an apostle? Someone who had seen physically and been around Jesus Christ. So, I will say this. There are sometimes people today who will say they are an apostle. That word is not fair to be used to anyone who is living right now. Okay? The apostle is reserved for someone who saw Jesus face-to-face, interacted with him at that time. So, they would not let any book get in the canon of Scripture unless it was an apostle or under the direction of an apostle. Give me an example. Matthew, an apostle? Check. One of the original 12. Mark, an apostle? Nope. Was he around the time of Jesus? Yes. Who did he get his information from? Everybody in the early church said he got it from Peter. He went around with Peter, and he wrote things down from Peter's perspective. That's how we got this information. How does anybody know about the transfiguration unless you are Peter, James, or John? Only three guys that were there. How come Mark writes his book if he wasn't there? Because Peter was there saying, let me write. Will you tell you this story? And Mark writes it down for him. 
all of these letters, they said, has to be either written by an apostle or under the direction of an apostle. Number two, there was wide reception. The document, the book of Scripture, might have been directed toward an individual person or a congregation, but understood to be dispersed widely. When James writes his book, um, he writes this way, James chapter 1, verse 1, James, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad, greetings. What? Where, where do you even postmark that to, right? Okay, like, where do you write a letter to the twelve tribes who were dispersed abroad? He wrote it, sent it to a church, and they began to copy and send it all over the place. There was an understanding when Paul wrote Ephesus. I'm writing it to Ephesus. There's also other people that are going to circulate these letters. Oh, guess Paul wrote another letter. Oh, it's helping our theology. It's helping our, how we're living our lives. They put these things together so it was understood as wide reception. And the third is this. There's a compatible theology. The document must align well with the other accepted portions of Scripture. So, if there was anything from the Gospel of Thomas, there was the Gospel of Judas, there was a go- all kinds of other letters that people said, um, 200 or so that were in consideration, there were only three that even came close to making the cut that aren't contained within 27. Only three, but due to... That's a little bit variance of theology. We're not exactly sure if that's accurate or not, and they would walk away from it. And so within this, um, what you need to understand is the 27 books we have in the, Old Te- the New Testament are not the books that some guys 400 years later go, oh, we like this one, we, we don't like this one. They say from the, from the very beginning when Jesus left these, these disciples in charge and let this Great Commission go, all of these letters that are contained in the Old Testament, uh, New Testament have to be connected to an apostle or given by an apostle. Wide reception, understood it was circulated along places in compatible theology. Sproul, in the, one of the books we're looking at, said it this way, We believe that the church was providentially guided by the mercy of God in the process of determining the canon and thereby made the right decisions so that every book that should be in the Bible is in the Bible. We have faith that what we have here is compatible to what? Peter and Paul and John and Jude and these different guys, they lived and operated by, and it's the same words that we walk with today. And stuff written hundreds of years later and put a name beside it are things that were rejected as being a part of the canon of Scripture. Make sense? Y'all got it? Explain it to all your friends who always ask these questions? Great, let's move on. Okay, real quick. Real quick, last section, authority of Scripture. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.15 says it this way, And how from childhood you've been equated with the sacred what? writings, the graphe, the scripture, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So you got faith, right? But the scriptures do what? They're able to make you wise for that salvation. They teach us what it is to be able to follow and to believe as we go forward. So um, here's one thing to think through really quick. We can believe that God's word is true because God's word says that it is. Now, does that sound like a problematic statement to anybody? You're doing it. You're, you're doing it, right? What's that called? Circular reasoning, right? I believe God's word because God's word says I should believe it. Okay. Well, I believe I'm the fairy. You know, like, you say all kinds of stuff, right? And because that one, how, how does this work? Okay. Um, Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so, right? Okay. Well, how do we know that the the Bible is correct? Here, here's what I mean by circular reasoning. Um, to say that we believe God's word is true because God's word says it's true is, in fact, circular reasoning. But I will say this. For someone who also would uh, a rationalist worldview, 
they are doing the same circular type of reasoning. A rationalist is someone who says that basically our reasoning, the capabilities in this world is the highest authority and whatever you think is right. And, and here's, here's the problem. If you're a rationalist worldview, you're saying, I believe that the way that I think through things are the most important things in this world. Well, what are you doing in that moment? You were assuming that the way that you think is the most important thing in this world, right? You're doing the same thing. So, so what comes down to it is this way. You have to determine what is going to be the start of the way that you begin to think and what sort of conflicts you at some point because the problem with human reasoning, as we've been talking about all day through the sermon, is this. Human reasoning doesn't work because our reasoning changes and it differs from each other. There has to be a standard outside of us. So either there is God's word above us, outside of us, or else we are just completely caught in our own circular reasoning of saying that we think we're the smartest people and therefore we should be trusted because we're the smartest people. It doesn't work. Something has to be the origin of truth and the belief. So with that, we, if we start from the belief that God's word is actually God's word, that scripture has unique authority upon the life of the believer and nothing else can supersede it. This is what is very different from us because, and, and I know that in this room, there's some of you that have grown up in a Catholic understanding, and this is what's challenging for this because out of all the things that you, you may have grown up, I was talking to someone recently, said, I grew up Catholic, and I just don't know God's Word like as much as I should. Like I almost felt like we were almost discouraged from reading God's Word, right? And in the Catholic Church, God's Word is elevated, but it's also on the same level as the Word of the Pope. So if the current pope says something, it's on the same authority of God's word today. That can be problematic, right? Because it can change. So to say this, that scripture has a unique authority upon the life of a believer, it's saying nothing else can supersede this. So, and I'll also say this way, you don't understand the truth of scripture until it bears weight upon your life. There's a lot of people who say they understand scripture, but until it's literally pushed in on you and changed you, I don't know if you understand it. Because what God's word is saying is this. There's a God in creation who has laid claim on your life, and you must submit to him. And unless it's transformed, now, practically, as, as we conclude, let me show you this really quick. Um, I mentioned today in the sermon from 1 Thessalonians 2, and by the way, did you plan that, this passage and this lesson? No, I didn't. The Lord did. Um, but it works really good. Now, I mentioned today in the sermon that everyone has a standard, even if they've never considered what it is, okay? Here's the thing. I, I didn't use these illustrations here today, but I'll, I'll give this to you just because you are my people, okay? Um, all right, there's a standard inside me, right, okay? Y'all know that guy right there? Okay, this is, there's, there's, a, there's a, a standard inside me, which is what? Feelings, right? How I feel. I think determined upon how I feel. There are times in my life where my feelings are so messed up, I do not trust myself to determine what I will eat tonight. Right? The standard based upon, this is the way I feel, so therefore there's this standard inside me. This is how I feel. The other standard people have, the standard beside me, right? Which is culture, right? This is what the culture is saying right now. They say it used to be not okay, but now it is okay, so therefore what are you going to do? Third option for standard is the standard behind me. This is what traditions, this is what experiences, this is what people behind me have told me. Either they were right or they were wrong. Or the standard has to be what? Above me, which is Scripture. So, for anyone who says, oh, you're just listening to Scripture because God says you should listen to Scripture. Or you can listen to your feelings because you want to listen to your feelings. Or you listen to culture because you want to listen to culture. Or you can listen to uh, traditions and experiences because you want to listen to traditions or experiences. Guess what? Out of those four things, there's only one thing that will not change. Right? Words the only thing that will change. Now, practically, this is how it, it lays down, because I don't want to give you this head knowledge and go, so what do I do with this? 
So where do you get your standard, right? Will it be above me, scripture, behind me, tradition, beside me, culture, or inside me, feelings? Practically speaking, as it lays out, who determines my sexuality? Y'all are saying God because we're in church. I know. Okay. All right. Love you. Love you. Let me ask you this question. If you determine your sexuality based on the standard inside you, your feelings. Folks, that, that is our culture right now, right? Right? You do realize that. Um, so in our culture, when people say, I have always felt this way, therefore God is allowing me to act in these manners. I will humbly submit to you that if I acted on every single one of my feelings, I would be in jail without any parole. There's, there's a lot of feelings I have that are not of God. In fact, most of them are not of God. If I determine my sexuality beside me based on culture, what is accepted today was not accepted 20 years ago. Right? Folks, um, you see commercials now that were not even thinkable in R-rated movies 10 years ago. Forced on you. Right? Culture says it's okay now, so therefore you got to adapt. Oh, it changes? Oh, gotcha. Behind me, tradition? Well, those folks back there, they weren't right, but now we are right, right? Okay, there has to be a, something that supersedes us. It, it is the authority of Scripture. Here's another question for you to consider. When does life begin? Right? Well, if you, you poll someone and ask their feelings, guess what? Their determination of when life begins determines upon what type of inconvenience it will afford for them, right? I had a lady come into my office who had aborted a child over 20 years ago and said, I cannot remove the guilt of my life because I sacrificed my child on the altar of convenience. I felt this was going to ruin my life, so therefore I did this. Beside me, what does the culture tell you? <laughs> Well, because the Supreme Court said it was okay in 1973, well, it's fine now, right? Not if God says it's wrong. Behind me, the tradition might be this way, but what does God's word say? Psalm 139, he says that in the womb, we were fearfully and wonderfully made. That's the standard that is far above us. Another question. What frames my understanding of race, ethnicity? Well, let me tell you, uh, if you have not looked around... Um, it may not be the 1960s, but the last two years have felt a little bit of racial tension. Anybody? Right? Yeah. So if your understanding of ethnic problems based upon how you feel, nine times out of ten, we're going to be incorrect. You know why? Because typically what happens this way, Satan wants to drive a wedge even within the church of Jesus Christ. Where if conflict happens, we always revert back to our people. Let me tell you, as a follower of Jesus, who our people needs to be. The people of God, red, yellow, and black, and white. Not, I'm going back to people who look like me. I go to people who believe like me. That's where I go back to, right? My feelings, well, you know, they're, no, 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 I can respond. I don't need to respond like a white, middle-aged man. I need to respond like a child of God, Right? I don't need to respond what culture is saying on this issue. They're completely beside themselves. They think they can fix it with some type of program in the schools that they know it's causing more issues. The traditions that we look at, the traditions of racism in our country, do we want to say, let's repeat that? No. 
People say, oh, it was the church was leaning in this way. The church was allowing certain things because they did not understand God's word. They go all the way back to the law. Well, slavery was in the Bible. Slavery, as we understand it in our culture, was condoned in Exodus chapter 21, right after the Ten Commandments. It says, if anybody steals a man and forces him to labor, ought to be put to death. Above me, Scripture clarifies everything, right? Clarifies everything. Yeah, but what do you feel? What is, no, 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 no. The church was wrong on this issue. History was wrong on this issue. We disobeyed scripture, right? That's what happened in the culture. And so we have to frame our understanding of race. What determines my politics? Oh, you meddling now, preacher. <laughs> you want your politics to be ter- determined by your feelings? Good luck there. By the culture around you? Absolutely crazy. Their traditions? Folks, Republicans and Democrats aren't even what they were 10 years ago. I've always been of this. Oh, that's fine. Guess what? They've changed. They're different, right? Or will my politics be governed by the unchanging, inspired, infallible, and errant word of God? As we come to it, this is where it lays hold of us, that it's not just some book on the shelf, but it is something that determines the absolute centerpiece of our lives. And so, Father, tonight, we humbly submit to you that our feelings, our culture, our experiences are no match for your word. That there is more truth in one verse of Scripture than in all the wise things that I could ever try to say in my life. And Lord... We must be people of your book in a culture that is based on feelings and um, just popular opinion. We want to know your word. And so, Lord, we can't understand you until we at least decide where is our textbook going to be. And I just know this, that if I try to make a theology around you based on how I feel, it's going to change day to day. But if I can go back to the one thing in this world, that while the flower may fade and the grass may wither, that the word of God will stand forever. That Jesus Christ, you were the same yesterday, today, and forever. It grounds us. So help us to be people of your book. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. In the name of Jesus we pray and all God's people said, amen. See you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Equip Podcast. Make sure to check out rockycreek.church for complete notes and additional resources. You can also subscribe to this podcast and get weekly courses delivered to you. We hope to equip you for the work of the ministry.